We're reading this morning from Revelation chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 1. Revelation chapter 11, it's in the bulletin and in the Bible. I'd rather use the Bible that's in front of you. Let's hear the word of God. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake. The tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. And behold, the third woe is soon to come. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The book of Revelation is countercultural. Not only countercultural when you consider the global culture, which is pagan, was it ever otherwise, but Christian culture. In the Western, uh, in Western Christianity, much of it has been dominated by the so-called influencers, the urban elites, who view themselves and their views as urbane and relatively accessible to the pagan culture around. They achieve this by avoiding hot-button issues while critiquing the common herd of Christians or dismissing them out of hand. Next to the urban elites, are the personality cults driven by some 
camera-loving celebrity, the megachurch pastors, the street-cred musicians, who seem to have their voice heard in every form of social media. This book, this book is addressed to the church, the Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. The church is the gathered and worshiping community. The church is the subject of this passage we have read. You can see that from the, the language of the temple. The church is described as a holy temple in which God meets with his people and God is present on the earth. Wherever the church is gathered like this, God is present on the earth in his church. We read of the priests, those who worship in the temple. Believers are a kingdom of priests. We offer spiritual sacrifices of prayer and praise as we come into the presence of God. The altar, the altar is the place on which are from which our prayers and our praises and even the sacrifice of our very lives ascends to heaven. And we are the visible representatives of the holy city, that is heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God. And while we, were here, we are here on earth, the church is charged with being a prophetic testimony to the world. That we saw last time is the significance of these two witnesses that are mentioned here. In the mouths of two witnesses, let anything be established. So in order to, for something to be legal, there have to be two witnesses. Hence, two witnesses. We saw that these two witnesses represent the whole number of God's people in their earthly role as a prophetic witness to Jesus. We saw from the early part of this chapter that the inner life of God's church is secure in the heavenly places. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When we gather to worship, we worship not only with those in the same room as us, but we worship with those around the world who are worshiping with us today. But we also join with the angels and the archangels and with the spirits of just men and women made perfect. Ours is heavenly worship. We are engaged, had we the eyes to see it, with the heavenly worship that goes on before the throne of God above all the time. These witnesses, however, they represent the church in its earthly life. That is the church as we see it here in this room, on this earth, very much connected to the life of the world in our public life here. Here, our lives are at risk. Secure in God, but at risk here. That's the meaning of those words that we read, that the nations, that is the ungodly nations, the nations that we read about in Psalm 2, who are always protesting against God and his Christ, his Messiah. The nations will trample the holy city for 42 months. And Jesus says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, precisely the same amount of time, the 42 months, and the three and a half years that we hear about later. 
So the church then is called to speak and to act for God. The church's calling is to preach a worldwide gospel of repentance before the day of God's wrath. This is what John had been doing. He had been holding fast and proclaiming abroad the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, we read in chapter 1. It was this that got him into prison on the Isle of Patmos where he's writing this prophecy. The task of prophecy he defines as this. It is the testimony of Jesus. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It is the business of the church, in other words, through its appointed speakers. It is the business of the church to proclaim Christ, to hold to Christ's teaching. And they are to be entirely active, fearless, and utterly devoted to the work of proclaiming Christ to the world. Uh, Here we see in an allegorical form the teaching of Jesus being enacted. This whole chapter is about the teaching of Jesus being enacted in the life of the church. Here's what Jesus said. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, then the end will come. Then the end will come. The gospel is not only the gospel of free grace. It is the gospel of the kingdom of the king. We don't come mealy-mouthed to the world with pious platitudes. We proclaim the message of the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So let's look first of all then at the great task, the great task of the church. These witnesses who represent the church all over the world and all through time until Jesus returns are modeled on two figures. And we see that in the text itself. The figures are are, are not named here, but they are referred to indirectly. Moses and Elijah. Moses who confronted Egypt and Elijah who confronts Israel. You can see that this, these witnesses represent them from what they do. Let's read what they do again. If anyone should harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes them. They have power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. They have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, those actions were the actions of Moses and Elijah. And here, here we find the Holy Spirit linking their actions with the church's witness. We also see an overlap here with those words, the sky and the waters and the earth, with three of the seven trumpet judgments that have been mentioned earlier in this book. The trumpets are the trumpet calls, the things that happen in the world, in the sky and in the waters and on the earth, whatever they might be, conflict and, and mysterious actions and, and uh, pollution and, and eventually disease and famine and death and so on. All of these things that have been described earlier 
These things are God's trumpet call to the world, and they accompany the work of the church as the church witnesses to Jesus. Unlike Moses and Elijah, fire comes from the mouths of the witnesses. With Elijah, the fire came from heaven. The fire is associated with what the witnesses are saying, with the word that they proclaim. Remember Jeremiah, who is also referred to here. We hear this, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Because they have spoken falsely, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire. And these people would, and the fire will devour them. The word of God is a fire that devours the wicked, whether metaphorically or in other ways. The ongoing ministry of the Word of God is matched to the events on earth which together form a twofold call from God to the world to repent and to believe. That means that in the process, like Moses and Elijah, the church must confront pagan rulers and pagan religion. Moses had to confront Pharaoh and his magicians, Balak and his false prophet Balaam. Elijah had to confront Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. Now, only the true church can do that. There are only two churches in the list of seven in the beginning of this book, two of them that are commended for their faithfulness. I got another reason why there are only two witnesses. Only faithful churches, in a sense, act as witnesses specifically to the world. Christian elites are anxious to show their, how compatible Christianity is with the new orthodoxies of our age. Scientism, not science, but scientism. Statism, not just the organization of the world into states, but state as a power and as an authoritarian movement. Wokeism, with its cancel culture, and so on. Christian populists, on the other hand, they're driven by religious feelings rather than by religious truth. What interests them is quantity of numbers rather than quality of discipleship. Those who want the attention of Christianity's cultured despisers are prone to yield ground rather than to stand fast. There are many people today who are lamenting, lamenting the influence of the church in the West. We used to have our hands on the levers of power, they say. We're no longer invited to the, uh, the White House or to Buckingham Palace or anywhere important anymore. The reality is that access to the levers of power never demonstrated the church's influence in the world. We were the puppets of these forces and these personalities. The real power of the churches is in the word of God that breeds fire. Fire in the hearts of men and women. Thoughtful biblical Christianity is intellectually demanding 
and coherent, but it is always at, at odds with the cultural orthodoxy of our times. The church prophesies by word and act, the act being faith in Christ and humility before God, as we've seen, and obedience to his commands. Today, the clamor to appear to be not saying what we really are saying grows louder and more insistent by the day. And it's interesting, isn't it, how many want to speak out against the issues of the day. Somehow, suddenly, some people have been converted to talking against racism. Well, Christians have been talking against racism since the very beginning of Christianity. Talking against racism is a good thing. But the ones who talk against racism, very often it's noticed what they're not talking about. For example, in 2008, more than 117,000 African-American babies were slaughtered in the slaughterhouses of our country. You can't talk about racism without talking about that. You see, Christianity is counter-cultural, not only by its theological doctrine, what we believe, but about its moral teaching. Carol Truman recently wrote this, the Christian gospel is first and foremost a judgment on this world, not a selective affirmation of it in the service of winning friends and influencing people. And so we must point to the wars that have raged in the world. We must point to the environmental disasters that we're seeing played out. As Christians, we're interested in the environment because we, we understand that we are to nourish and cherish the world that God gave us. The environmental di- disasters, the, the political turmoil that we are seeing today, if you read the newspapers or, or go online and, and, and watch what's being said and done in countries all over the place, you'll think that politicians seem to have lost their heads everywhere. But what is that saying to the world? That the world's a condemned building. When I was a little boy, there was a while we lived in a condemned building. It was a, an early 1800s tenement building. And as people left, their places were not filled, which was great for us little boys. We played in the abandoned flats. But there was one day we woke up in our house. It was a small house. There was one room that had a sink at the window and a tiny little stove and a a little table that folded away, and a a couch, and a recess where my parents slept, and they pulled the curtain, and one bedroom. One morning we woke up to this horrendous noise. The ceiling had collapsed in, and they had to move us out of there and move us to the flat underneath, where we, we lived for the next few years, actually, quite a few years after that horrendous thing. But that roof caving in was a reminder, wasn't it, that we were living in a condemned tenement building. The pandemic is a reminder to the world that we are living in a condemned tenement building. This world has already been condemned. It's under the condemnation of God. You think of the Second World War. 
You think of where most, where most of the Second World War occurred. In the 18th and 19th centuries, Europe, uh, with the Enlightenment, departed from God dramatically. The French Revolution was an anti-God movement. From the very beginning, they wanted to destroy the church in France. When uh, Adolf Hitler came to power, it was his intention to destroy Christianity. He nearly did. The entire Protestant church virtually capitulated to Hitler and adopted the Hitler church. Roman Catholicism held the fort, but it was Hitler's intention. We We now know Hitler's intention Had the war been won by Hitler, that he was going to destroy. He'd already killed, by the way, tens of thousands of Catholic priests during the war, but he was going to destroy the church, the the Roman church, after the war. That's the kind of world we live in. And the wars should have been a warning to the world. In the very place where Christianity had reigned and influenced and being good for people and societies when it was abandoned that's where the war was doesn't the world sit up and think why did it happen there that's why it happened there the business of the church is to to point these things out to the world the word of God and the things that happen are putting the world on notice The little church has to maintain its strange testimony to the great unseen spiritual conflict that reigns and rages both in the souls of men and women and in the world we live in as well. Moses and Elijah had to do this. They stood up to human authorities, Pharaoh and Jezebel. They stood up against Egypt's magicians and Jezebel's prophets of Baal. The church is always an encounter, not just with human opposition, but with pagan power and religion. And behind them, the principalities and powers of this fallen world and its darkness. You cannot talk about total depravity in individuals as we do. Recognizing that sin pervades all of my intentions and my life and the things that I do and the things that I think and the things that I say. We say that about ourselves. Brothers and sisters, total depravity touches every organization and institution in the world, including the church. Which is why we have to repent of the fact that at one stage in America and in England and other places, Good, reformed, sound teaching men made a case, they thought, from the Bible to sustain slavery. They did. Just as we have covered up and explained away spousal abuse and child abuse in churches. We have. And we need to repent of that. That's why the church is viewed as going around in sackcloth in this passage. The spirit of repentance. Because we know we are sinners. But we also know that sin is to be found in all the power structures of this world. Total depravity. 
So the power of the witnesses then is the power of the Word of God. As long as they're able to preach it, it's their immunity from attack. For as long as, but no longer than, they need to complete the work that God has given them to do. Every man is immortal until his work is done, said Oliver Cromwell. Their witness makes the judgments intelligible as judgments. It needs to be spelt out to the world why these things are happening. They're not happening because God is targeting any individuals. He is proclaiming to the world, you need to take these things seriously. There is a day of judgment coming. The ministry of the Word is a spiritual ministry. Fire pours from their mouth. You see it's figurative. You can see it's symbolic. It's pointing to a higher and greater reality. The Word of God, God says, the words that come from my mouth, they never return void or empty. They will accomplish what I send them out to do. And so on they go for three and a half years, 150, 1260 days, 42 months of ministry, as long as Jesus lived. That period of time, as it were, is symbolic of the entire story of the church in the world. God makes his word like a fire in the mouths of his prophets. We come with a message. It's a message of eternal life, isn't it? Like Jesus. Jesus offered eternal life to men and women. But Jesus also said, said that Sodom and Gomorrah would fare better in the day of judgment than those cities that had rejected the gospel. The response to the gospel message is a choice between life and death. You remember when Jesus was before the earthly judge, the Roman governor, Pilate. You remember he witnessed to himself, my kingdom is not of this world. You notice that he warned Pilate that Pilate himself would stand before the judgment seat of the Son of Man. We have to warn the world, even the world's rulers of this. Don't say we're going to be nicey-nicey. This is our job. The world will not be saved by nicey-nicey. We had 50 years of evangelicalism in North America telling us to do just that. Don't, don't mention hell. Don't mention judgment. Don't be too harsh. Leave this and that out so that the impression we make is that we are rational, urbane, people that you can have at a dinner party and feel happy with. These witnesses are not like that. In fact, we're told they're a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. That's precisely what Christianity is. Doesn't matter how small it becomes in society. The British Humanist Society, only this week, they, they issued a, a statement uh, denigrating the church and saying the church was uh, useless for society, wasn't doing anything good for society at all, and that therefore the charity laws shouldn't apply to the church. It's always that in the background. People today talk about justice. But when people talk about justice today, it is to the total neglect of biblical justice. 
In Israel, justice had to do with the rule of law, righteousness in the culture. Biblical justice involves moral values and righteous laws. All the secular theories of our time don't even know what justice means or agree what justice means. Instead, they're just the expression of opinions. Opinions that are aimed at undermining any critical thought. In biblical terms, justice begins with our relationship to God. Just and holy is his name. The great task. The great task is to blow the trumpet of the gospel. To point to what's going on in the world and remind society it is condemned. And to plead with men and women to come to Christ. Well, that's the business of the church as long as the church is on earth, as long as its mission lasts. But when you come to verse 7, we come to the great distress. The great distress. The church has been missionally, uh, has been, sorry, marvelously preserved, supernaturally protected throughout the age. The gospel has been preached to the world And now with verse 7, the end comes. We know what they've been preaching. In chapter 14, they've been preaching this. Fear God, give him glory, the hour of judgment will come. And it befits the church to confront men and women with the choice. Whom will you serve? Well, the three and a half year ministry of Jesus has a downside to it. He spent the time as a prophet preaching the word of God, didn't he? He cared for the people. He did what he could do uh, to bear witness to the light throughout his life. But how did it end? It ended with his death. The Bible is a very straightforward philosophy of history. It is the story of conflict between God and Satan, between Christ and Antichrist. The enemy we face is the same enemy that wanted to kill Jesus in Bethlehem. But Satan is an angelic being. He's a spiritual being who's fallen into rebellion. He carries on his work in the world through human instruments of evil. Satan uses willing human instruments like world leaders like Hitler and Pol Pot and Stalin and others less well-known. Medical doctors, like the ones who experimented on prisoners in the Nazi death camps and the Soviet gulags, and who killed babies in our local slaughterhouses. The commercial and industrial moguls whose wealth gives them a seat at any table they wish and who have their influence all over the world and in every every area that touches on human life. Wherever there is a human institution, we find Satan's involvement. But look at these words. And when they have finished their testimony. It's talking about the end of history, folks. The end of history. The end of this age. The preaching of the gospel has reached the earth to the ends of the earth. 
And now, now there emerges, there rises from the bottomless pit a beast that will make war on them and kill them. Immediately before the second coming of Jesus, this beast will arise. There will be an intensification of conflict between earthly powers and the church that has been waging off and on, hot and cold, throughout this age. The beast mentioned here is referred to in Daniel 7, and it refers to earthly kingdoms and empires in contrast to the kingdom of the saints. Here we have a power of imperial magnitude, a globalist power of great strength. It finds its origin and its power from beneath, from hell. It opposes itself to Christ's witnesses. Oh, yes, there have been anticipations of such powers. Rome and Islam, the French and Russian revolutions, Nazism, communism. The ancient church associated this beast with the Antichrist. The French, communist, and Nazi revolutions all set their sights on the destruction of the church and are in history there to remind us that this is coming in the future. But what strikes me as quite interesting is the way in which this is all described. The beast conquers and kills them. The death of the saints is described matter-of-factly, as if, well, it was always going to be that way, because they're following Jesus. And the mission of the church on earth, which has now been nearly 2,000 years, is to, is to follow the outline plan of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry on earth. And just as he had to face at the end rejection and death, so the church will have to face at the end of history rejection and death. After the death of the saints comes public humiliation, denied burial, their bodies are exposed on the streets. You see how the city is described. It's one city, a great city, symbolically, symbolically or allegorically called Sodom or Egypt or the city where the Lord was crucified. These are not three places. The word symbolically or allegorically applies to all three of them. Here is the world which is like Sodom at its most corrupt, Egypt at its most oppressive, Jerusalem at its most unholy, when it crucified the Lord of glory. Yes, there have been times in history where the church has seen, seemed to be coming to an end, seemed to be running out of steam. Many antichrists have come into the world. But this is the end, the ultimate antichrist. And do you see that the fall of the church in those days will be a cause of huge joy on the part of the world system? Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice 
over them and make merry and exchange presents. It's like Christmas all over again, except it's an un-Christmas. Because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Now, I, I, don't, I don't name sins very often from the pulpit. But I remember when I was younger, because uh, I was younger once, uh, preaching, being a minister in a church, and this person spoke to me afterwards. They, they eventually became a Christian. But they spoke to me one day and said, you keep on. Who told you about me? You keep on talking to me. You keep on all the time. Like every time I come in, you're talking about me and my life and, and things that I've done wrong. In my, you, you keep doing it. <laughs> I, I, you, I don't even know any of these things. Maybe someone else is talking to you. You're uncomfortable with a sermon. It's not very likely that I know you about you. It's because God is talking to you. Well, the third thing in the passage, the great task, the great distress, the great reversal, the great reversal. The scene is horrific. Night has descended on humanity. Human rebellion has reached its apotheosis. Satan's victory will seem complete, but the world's joy will not last long, and it will end miraculously and absolutely. After three and a half days, following the, the life of Christ here in the, in the symbolic language, after a short period, after a short period, the dead witnesses will be summoned by a loud voice. As Paul describes it, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Here we're told what the command will be. Come up here. And God will raise them up from the dead before the eyes of their enemies. Their resurrection will be a public event. Ezekiel describes it like this. The breath came into them and they lived and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great host. Now there have been periods of history, as I've mentioned, where the church seemed to be at the end of its, its life and power and almost at collapse, at death's door. And that has been followed by a revival, a bringing to life of the church that has put it back on its feet and dismayed the world. But this is not a revival. This is a resurrection. This is an ascension as believers of all ages and places, to use the language of Paul, are caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. The rapture of the church is no secret rapture. It is as public as you can get. No one saw Jesus rise from the dead, but everyone who has ever lived will see the rapture of the church. We saw that in chapter 1 of Revelation. Every eye will see him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. It says here in verse 12, they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And then there are cosmic convulsions 
and the people are terrified and they give glory to the God of heaven. Here is humanity forced now by circumstance to admit what they steadfastly denied throughout their lives. That God is and that God is righteous and that God is powerful and they are struck with terror. This is not the fear of the Lord that brings wisdom. This is terror of a God whose existence they had denied. A God whose servants they had killed. A God whose enemies they had deified. And they give glory to God when it's too late for their salvation. There's remorse, but there's no repentance. Now, brothers and sisters, men and women, we do not know when this day will take place. It's not this day. Not this day. This is a day of salvation. This is a day for you to hear the word of God to you, to you personally. As he speaks through Isaiah and says to you, turn to me, turn to me, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself, I have sworn from my mouth has gone forth in righteousness a word that shall never be recalled. To me, every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear. What shall they swear? Paul in the New Testament gives us the answer. They will swear that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Will you say that today? Turn to me, says God. Will you turn today? Let's pray. Lord, we pray that in your mercy you would hear from heaven and that you would revive your church, giving us life and health and that you would hasten the day when we see Jesus face to face. And in the meantime, Lord, make us a faithful church. We're only answerable for ourselves here as a congregation. Make us faithful to you in our day. That should that day occur, we will already be psychologically and spiritually ready for it. Ready to die for Jesus' sake. 